0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Um,
1: So I'm here today um, to talk with you about some losers. Um, and by this I mean we're going to be discussing a dream that failed to be realized and the group of people who failed to realize it. Um, Of course, in our very act of doing this, we're going to have to um, in some sense re-raise the questions that were important to them in the context that they lived in so that we can understand uh, why they thought those questions were important, Um, and we're going to Hopefully assume that there's some purpose to this exercise because um, You know when history delivers a verdict on something um, You can very justly raise the question. Well, why should we talk about these people who did not win? Um, The situation turned out otherwise, so what is the purpose of re-examining the goals of these people from the past who have now been left behind by history and so, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the binationalists of Palestine. And when I say Palestine, I mean the 1920s, um, when the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River was referred to as Palestine by Jews who lived there, as well as by Arabs who lived there and by the British. Um, binationalism was just one name for the dream that they had. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, it had other names as well. Um, For many of them this thing that they were thinking of as binationalism was the exact same thing as socialism Uh, For others, it was the exact same thing as Judaism Uh, So we have to be very careful when we're talking about binationalism to um, Look at which expressions of it we are talking about Um, But the thing about binationalism is that socialism also means a lot of other things and Judaism also means a lot of other things but Binationalism really only means this, in this time, in this place. Um, And so when we tell this story, um, I'm sure you all know a lot about the origins and early history of the Zionist movement. So, Thank you. I appreciate that. So I won't go too deeply into um, a lot of this stuff that you probably already know about Herzl and Pinsker and Achata'am. But just to say that... um, It was the case that over the course of the 1880s and 1890s, this movement gained strength that said that it was time for Jews to stop uh, putting up with minority status in countries that primarily belonged to others, stop putting up with anti-Semitic violence and uh, legal discrimination directed against them, um, and instead to pursue independence in a separate country. Instead of being vulnerable forever in... uh, Instead of being scapegoats every time the economy took a wrong turn or somebody lost a war, um, the Jews should essentially uh, vacate the premises, have an exodus, go somewhere else. Um, And the obvious candidate for where to go was the land of Israel, the historic uh, homeland of the Jewish people. Now, at the time, though, right, this was in the Ottoman Empire. And nobody, not Herzl, not Pinsker, uh, expected at that time in the 1880s and 90s that the Ottoman Empire was about to just disappear off the face of the earth. That did in fact happen, but it was unanticipated. So they usually weren't really thinking of the state that they would create in the way that we think of the state of Israel today as a sovereign, <coughs> independent state with a Jewish majority. If it was going to exist, it was going to have to be some sort of autonomous region. Um, And if we look at where most of the early Zionists came from, they came from empires. The Russian Empire, the Romanovs, uh, the Austria-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburgs. And each of these empires was multinational, right? The whole premise of an empire is it stretches over so much space that it can't possibly be the property of one nationality. Uh, The ruling family, of course, is likely to belong to one particular nationality. But within the empire, there's going to be all these different people. Um, And so what nationalist movements at that time, and not only Zionism, often were striving for, was some sort of autonomy rather than full sovereignty. So if you live in an area that was mostly Czech, you would hope that there would be some respect for the Czech language. Um, You could teach Czech culture in schools, even if you were still in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? And so many of the Zionists were thinking along similar lines. Um, But... The uh, Ottoman Empire would, of course, have to give, in some sense, permission for there to be established a new concentration of Jewish people where there was previously a very small population. There were always Jews in the land of Israel through all of the centuries, um, usually religious Jews who came there to study, who came there to, um, at the end of their lives because they wanted to be buried there, um, and, of course, the indigenous community of uh, Jerusalemite families that lived there For many, many generations. Um, But the Ottoman Empire was going to notice if Jews from the rest of the world all started amassing in great numbers in that land. So in some sense, they would have to give permission. And that was Herzl's whole program, was to try and get permission from the Sultan to set up this sort of autonomous community. Um, Now, as I said, uh, the Ottoman Empire then did, in fact, suddenly disappear. Um, And this was sort of a surprise. Um, People were not necessarily expecting that. Um, And so what happened then was that there was uh, an expectation that the British Empire, which was the sort of last empire standing, um, the Russian Empire also collapsed in the Russian Revolution. The Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed uh, and turned into Austria and Hungary and Romania and uh, all of these separate countries. Um, And so the British Empire was going to kind of take custody of this land under a system that was called the Mandate System. The French got mandates, uh, the British got mandates, Um, and the premise of the mandate was that the colonial or um, uh, foreign power would only be in charge for a little while. That was basically one of the requirements of President Woodrow Wilson, who held as a principle that basically um, countries should not be ruled over by foreign powers, but they should administer their own affairs. So in every case, the mandate was supposed to eventually yield to self-government. But now the question in Palestine became more complicated because the question was self-government of who? Um, Because the British had committed in 1917 um, in the Balfour Declaration to supporting a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Of course, the word homeland was intentionally chosen to be vague. Uh, They did not say a Jewish state. They did not say um, any particular kind of state. Um, Nonetheless, that meant that there were at least two populations that were the candidates for becoming the people who would be in charge when the mandate was over, right? So that raised the question, um, should it be the Jewish population or the Arab population? If the British had vacated in 1920, Uh, As soon as they got the mandate and they said, okay, the majority is going to be in charge That would have meant the Arabs would have had another country Mm. So um, The agitation during the 1920s After the British got the mandate Was often revolving around this question How soon should there be independence? Generally, the Zionist movement wanted it To wait a little while Because they wanted more Jews to be able to immigrate So that there would be Um, minimally, if the British decided to leave and grant the Arab population a legislature, minimally, there would be much more Jewish representation in that legislature. Maximally, the longer the wait, the more likely it would be that there would eventually be a Jewish majority in the country. And then when the British left, it could be a Jewish country. But the point is that this was an extremely fluid situation. So we have to put ourselves back in the 1920s, right? This is 10 years... Before Hitler and the Nazis Uh, Nobody knows that that's gonna happen Um, Nobody knows that there's going to be this mass emigration from Europe, right? So prior to 1924 actually when the US puts in its uh, immigration restrictions There are way more Jews who are leaving Russian lands for the United States than there are going to Palestine So the Zionists are interested in getting the immigration rate up They're interested in enticing more Jews to come to Palestine. And that means that they're interested in presenting it as an attractive option. They don't want to say, come here so you can fight with another people to control this country. right? Um, And and people aren't being driven to there by being refugees yet. Because they have other options and there's no Nazis yet. uh, And there's no war. The war just ended. They didn't think there was going to be another war. So that's the kind of world that we're in when we're talking about these uh, people that we're gonna talk about today. Um, The Balfour Declaration is number one on your sheet, actually. And so maybe it would be um, worthwhile to just take a quick look at it. The entire text is right there. That's not an excerpt. It's a very short um, little piece. And it says, his majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, whatever that means, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So there was also a, a fear at that time um, Among non-Zionist Jews living in France and Germany and the US that the Zionist movement would endanger them That these other governments would say hey, why don't you move there? Uh, That's where you belong Um, And so that was you know uh, an important factor in terms of um, comforting people the Balfour Declaration in and of itself just the simple fact that it existed made Zionism a more attractive option um, because Instead of thinking that they were going to move to Palestine and live as Ottoman subjects, there was the notion that you could move to Palestine and you would either be a British subject, a much more attractive proposition um, for Russian Jews or Ukrainian Jews than being an Ottoman subject, or you might eventually have some form of whatever national home would mean. Right? So this automatically is a potential boon to the movement. right? It's going to get a, potentially a lot more... Um, a lot more immigrants. Now even though national home is so vague, there are a lot of people who assume that the goal of the Zionist movement at this time is to create a commonwealth, a state um, that would have a Jewish majority. Um, And in pursuit of that aim, right, the Zionists would seek unlimited immigration for Jews into Palestine, would seek to be able to buy land at whatever rate the market would support, and would also segregate themselves economically in order to build up a foundation for an independent economy. Um, And those were practices that the movement was in fact pursuing, and those are the practices that would have been necessary to create such a state. So many people who were observing this, uh, especially Arabs in Palestine, assumed that what the Zionist movement wanted to eventually create was such a state. If you look at the second document on your sheet, which is from July of 1919, almost 100 years ago, exactly. Um, a body called the General Syrian Congress, which was an Arab activist um, a political body, petitioned the King Crane Commission, which was a cr- uh, created to, a stab- to settle the question of the British mandate, um, not to allow the Zionists to create a Jewish commonwealth in the southern part of Syria, known as Palestine. So... Before the San Remo Conference, before Britain was given the mandate for Palestine, there was the border between Syria and Palestine was a soft border, and there was potential that the whole area would be administered by one mandate, and eventually they said, oh, the French can get Syria, the British will get pal- Palestine. That drew the border. Just like the British drew the borders in Iraq and drew the borders around Jordan, they drew the borders around Palestine. It was them they decided. And the Syrian Congress also asked the British to restrict Zionist migration to any part of our country, for we do not acknowledge their title, but consider them a grave peril to our people from the national, economical, and political points of view. Our Jewish compatriots shall enjoy our common rights and assume the common responsibilities. This language is very particular to this geopolitical situation. You didn't see any big Arab... Uh, Political bodies like this making statements like this prior to the end of World War One for the simple reason that if it was going to be an Ottoman province Thank you um, There was no need for a statement like this But with the British in charge and them having expressed their sympathies to the idea of a Jewish national home uh, This sense of threat emerged immediately, which is why when you look back at the history of the Zionist settlement in Palestine the first big outbreaks of violence uh, between Jews and Arabs in Palestine, come in the 20s. There are occasional skirmishes that you see in the 1880s or 90s that are um, really about specific things that wouldn't be that different than skirmishes that would have happened among the Arabs themselves. You know, did this population and this Moshav take this guy's donkey? Did they use this well when they weren't supposed to? Um, There were conflicts about those kinds of things. This, though, is a national conflict, right? This is the question of who is going to rule here? Who is going to be in charge? So one question we might ask is whether the General Syrian Congress was right about what the Zionists wanted. And actually, there's some very interesting recent scholarship by a guy at the Hebrew University called Dmitry Shumsky. Um, He wrote a book that just came out called Beyond the Nation State. And he argues that um, not just the people I'm going to talk about today, the binationalists who were weirdos, who were kind of fringe characters, but even central people like Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky thought in the early 1920s in terms of things like multinational confederations, autonomous regions, et cetera, and that only the circumstances of the 30s and 40s uh, created the push towards a fully sovereign state of the kind that eventually came into being. So perhaps in the early 1920s, uh, the General Syrian Congress was not correct uh, to imagine that this was definitely what the Zionist movement was after. Nonetheless, though, um, they were watching what the Zionists were doing, right? And what they were doing was immigrating at increasing rates, buying land at increasing rates, and creating sustainable independent economies uh, at increasing rates. Um, And so the Arabs of Palestine, after that separation was created between Syria and Palestine, resolved... um, that what they needed to do was push for the creation of that legislature, right, that independent democratic legislature, because if that was created in 1922, it would have been 12 percent Jewish representation, um, and 88 percent Arab representation. 78 um, percent Muslim, 10 percent Christian. Uh, but by 1931, Jews were 17 percent of the population, almost a fifth. Um, And when you get to the 40s right after the situation becomes really dire for Jews in Europe the the immigration numbers go up drastically Now again, we have to it's hard to rewind our memory and to go back to a time before anyone knew that that would happen, right? Um, But the Arab political goal is to get the British to create this legislature Um, so What the Zionist leaders like Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky want to do is they want to entice people to immigrate And again, they want to present it as an attractive option. This is something that is going to be beneficial for everyone. The Arabs aren't going to be angry that we're coming here. Um, And so they actually play down the idea of a conflict. They don't uh, refer to the idea that there's a national conflict. Um, Privately, of course, they may think otherwise. But when they're speaking in public, they don't talk about wanting a state. And they don't talk about the idea of a conflict. So what they do instead is they just converse with the British authorities and they pressure them. Let us have a higher immigration rate. Um, Let us um, have access to more land for purchase potentially. Um, And of course, if you're Jabotinsky and the revisionists, they were advocating, oh, let's also include Transjordan in the mandate for Palestine so that whenever the decision is made about what the national home will be, it will include Transjordan as well. Okay, so Those are the main ideological groups the the labor movement at the time, which was being led by um, Ben-Gurion and the revisionist movement uh, being led by Jabotinsky. They don't necessarily disagree about um, these basic issues immigration land acquisition and uh, Economic self-segregation they disagree about these um, much broader political issues. Uh, Jabotinsky and the Revisionists were not socialists. They were against the notion that this eventual Jewish home would be run on socialist principles, whereas Ben-Gurion and the Labour Party were very much uh, in favor of that. And they disagreed about Transjordan and the mandate, but they didn't disagree about these main fundamental goals. So the reason that these binationalists that I'm gonna talk to you about today were so weird, again, is not That they were not thinking in terms of a single sovereign state with a Jewish majority because even in the although later both Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky would think in those terms in the early 20s They weren't necessarily Um, But rather it's because they were willing to look at these fundamental issues immigration land acquisition and economic segregation and Raise questions about whether the Zionist movement should be doing different things in those areas. That's what really made them an ideologically distinct party. They also raised questions about whether the goal of Zionism should be a nation state with a Jewish majority. They raised that question early, not because they thought that it was um, uh, necessarily the absolutely dominant Zionist position, although it probably was uh, in private, but because they knew that that's what the Arabs thought. And They knew that from 1917 from the moment the Balfour Declaration was issued That the Arabs thought that the Zionist goal was a nation-state with a Jewish majority and insofar as they thought that They would fight Zionism. So what they wanted was to um, attempt to head off that fight By getting the Zionist movement to change its policies. And if you look at the third document on your handout, This is the Charter of the Brit Shalom Association. Uh, The name means uh, Covenant of Peace. Uh, It was founded in 1925, initially as a study circle of kind of big shots, uh, intellectuals, and people who were in charge of various Zionist organizations with the aim of studying the Arab question, as they called it, and making recommendations to the Zionist executive on the basis of their study. So according to the Charter... The object of the association is to arrive at an understanding between Jews and Arabs as to the form of their mutual social relations in Palestine on the basis of absolute political equality of two culturally autonomous peoples and to determine the lines of their cooperation for the development of the country. Towards this end, the association will promote a... The study of the problems arising out of the existence of the two peoples in Palestine and out of the mandate under the League of Nations. B, the spreading of verbal and written information among Jews and Arabs on the history and culture of both peoples and the encouragement of friendly relations between them. C, the creation of a public opinion favorable to a mutual understanding. And D, the creation of institutions calculated to advance these ends. So, yes?
2: Where was this this group of people, were they in?
1: They were in Jerusalem.
2: In Jerusalem. Mm-hmm.
1: It had members who were um, kind of like board members who were still in Europe in different places, mm-hmm. um, but the bulk of them were in Jerusalem. Um, and I'll tell you who some of them were, because um, insofar as this organization had significance, right? it was not a mass organization. It didn't have, uh, it wasn't a political party, so it didn't have thousands of members and they didn't have marches in the street. Uh, It was more of um, something like what we would say a think tank today. Um, But they included um, Arthur Ruppin, who was one of the founders of Tel Aviv and who at the time was the chief land agent for the Zionist organization. Hans Kohn, who was the head of the information department of the Karen Hayisod, a major fundraising arm of the Zionist movement. Um, Hugo Bergman, who was a professor of philosophy at the Hebrew University and who was the first director of the Jewish National Library. Uh, Yitzhak Epstein, who was one of the founders of the Zionist school system in Palestine um, Chaim Kalverisky, who was an agronomist and who was the director of the Jewish colonization agency um, Back then colonizing was not a dirty word like it is today um, So you had organizations like the Jewish colonization agency and they just thought that was a good thing to call your organization um, Jacob Thone who was the director of the Palestine Land Development Corporation Um, Gershom Sholem, you probably know who he is, a scholar of Jewish mysticism, uh, single-handedly created the field of Kabbalah Um, And Ernst Simon who was a professor of education and who was also a board member of the B'nai Akiva, the religious Zionist youth movement Um, So these people were not all in the same political parties. Some of them were more labor-leaning, some of them were more right-wing They weren't um, engaging together on that basis Um, They were engaged together because they saw themselves as um, potentially contributing something to Zionism by um, producing recommendations on this problem that they saw as a pressing issue and that they thought that others, perhaps for tactical reasons, were downplaying, right? But they said, this is going to be a really big deal and you need to pay attention to it now before it's too late. So within the institution, though, there's a big split precisely because they weren't a political party. Um... So, in the first issue of their journal, which was called She'ifotenu, um, they all agreed with a particular formulation, which I have as number four in your handout. Mbrit Shalom wishes to create here in Eretz Israel a state inhabited jointly by the two peoples living in this country, under complete equality of rights, as the two elements which jointly and equally determine the destiny of this country, without regard for the fact Which of the two is at any particular time numerically superior? So, hold on to that. That's pretty important. Brit Shalom aspires to create here in Palestine a solid and wholesome Jewish community to contain as many Jews as possible without regard for the fact whether the Jews attain a majority as against the other inhabitants of this land or not. Since the question of a majority in this country should in no way be linked with any advantages or privileges. Um, So... They all agreed that the Zionist leadership was mistakenly ignoring Arab nationalism. Um, And they all worried, as Arthur Ruppin wrote, uh, that disaster was in store for Zionism unless it is capable of finding a common platform with the Arabs. But they did not all agree as to the nature of this mistake or the nature of this disaster. So there was one way of seeing it, which is that it was a tactical error. Um, If the Zionist was going to succeed in its aims, it needed to pay attention to this, Um, Because otherwise it might lose out and be defeated and the Arab nationalist movement might gain strength and successfully appeal to the British To make the country an Arab state or to grant the legislature before there were enough Jews in the country That would be a tactical way of seeing the problem But there were also members of the organization who thought that what was going on was actually a moral error And maybe even a sin in a Jewish sense Um, so for example Judah Magnus, who was the first chancellor of the Hebrew University, um, would have been an obvious candidate to join Brit Shalom because he was always writing about the Arab question. But he didn't because he thought that it didn't go far enough and that its binationalism and its pacifism were just tactical. So that's point five, uh, uh, entry five on your handout. He writes, the reasonable arguments of Bergman and Brit Shalom are based wholly on tactics, Jewish weakness. Arab strength, Jewish minority, Arab majority. The question goes much deeper. My friends, suppose the case were reversed and you were the majority. Would you then believe in the two nationalities system? Perhaps, but one has the feeling that there are all too few whose tactics spring from a well-considered, deeply-believed-in principle, which is right, whoever be majority or minority. Um, So he's saying, okay, Breach Shalom is making this grand... Idealistic statement, you know in this country. It shouldn't matter who is the majority and who is the minority Well, you know, it's easy to say that if you're 18% um, Why would the Arabs agree to that though? He's saying so um, in that sense he perceives it as merely tactical um, And what Magnus has put his finger on um, Is that there's a sort of a coterie or a core within Brit Shalom who are really radical who are thinking that, actually, what the Zionist movement should be doing is not just um, moving Jews from one place to another or creating a state that's like the other states that exist in the world, only it's Jewish, but actually, um, in some sense, revolutionizing politics by putting Jews back into politics. So, this core basically consisted of uh, Bergman, Kohn, and Simon. Um, Those were um, and some of the members who had official positions in the Zionist organization branches like uh, the land development corporation or the executive so um, uh, Bergman when he defined the outlook of B'rish Shalom, he really only meant this radical core Um, And that's if you look at number six on your handout. This is Hugo Bergman here We want Palestine to be our land in the sense that the political and moral outlook of Judaism leave their imprint on the life in this country. That we carry out here the doctrine which has been living in our hearts for 2,000 years. Whereas our opponents have a different outlook altogether. When they talk about Palestine as our land, the term our land means ours and not theirs. This philosophy is borrowed from Europe in the era of its decline and is founded on the conception of the state, which is the property of one people only. In Palestine, there is no room for the people of the state or for any national sovereignty. Here in this country, our historical fate has determined that we be those fighting for a change of values in the life of nations, to break up that majority spirit in the life of nations, to set up a new national and political morality in the world, which would secure a national minority the same rights enjoyed by the majority and eliminate totally the political value of numerical relations between people. So on the basis of this conception, right, uh, Zionism is not just um, to create a Jewish state that would be like the Czech state or like the Romanian state, but it's supposed to do something completely new, which is eliminate the entire question of national majority and minority from the definition of the state. In other words, not a nation state. Um, Now, this isn't completely original, right, because technically there's already some states in the world that are like that. The United States, for example... Um, Arguably, uh, the United States, when it defined African slaves as three-fifths of a person, um, created a form of citizenship that was restricted by race. But um, the definition of white was not national. So it didn't say the state is for Anglos or Germans or Frenchmen or Portuguese. There was a notion of race that determined citizenship, so it was a little different. Um, But nonetheless, it was not a nation-state, right? Um, so it would have been um, perhaps pushing that further, but it wasn't completely uh, original. Um, what he was saying was that the other Zionists were thinking about the nation-state in this European way. You have Romania for the Romanians, you have France for the French, and they would be better off to do something else. So on the basis of this, Bergman and his group within Breach Shalom argued that the Zionist movement should actually openly reject the Balfour Declaration, and in its place, attempt to um, persuade the main Arab political bodies to issue a separate declaration um, about what Jewish life in Palestine um, would be, um, recognizing the Jewish historic connection to Palestine, recognizing the contribution um, Jews can make to political life in Pal- Palestine, recognizing the right of Jews to immigrate. Um, now, they understood that such a goal would be potentially very difficult, take a long time to achieve. And this is where it's also very important to remember that it's 1925 or 26, right? So um, they're not thinking in terms of urgency. What they're thinking about is if there's two ways for Jews to come to Palestine, and one way is where it seems like we're basically agents of the British, and we're agents of British imperialism, and we're here to colonize the land on behalf of the West, and the other way is that we get the people who are already here to agree that we should come here and be part of their independence movement, that second way is much better for us long term. It's a much better guarantee, actually. But that's a hard argument to make when people are saying, well, the British already gave us a guarantee, and they're in charge now. So we can come now. Um, Whereas if we do what you're asking, who knows how long it will take to persuade them that this is a good idea, right? So they knew that. They knew that this was going to be a tough road to hoe. Um, And in this argument, um, some of them would cite Martin Buber, who was the uh, spiritual inspiration. He was a teacher of a lot of these people like Bergman and Simon um, and Cohn. And Martin Buber said on this issue, God does not sign promissory notes, (laughs) but blessed be the man who lends himself to God without any bill of exchange. In other words, this is a matter of faith. Um, So... I want to say something very briefly about how this affected the Brit Shalom recommendations on those issues I mentioned before. So if we start with land acquisition, right? Um, Most of the Zionists typically did not see the Zionist method of land acquisition as a problem um, because it was market acquisition. Somebody's selling this land, you buy it, what's the problem, right? Um, This is uh, as innocent as it gets, right, compared to violent conquest. but what some of these Brit Shalom folks were worrying about was that the Jewish National Fund and the Palestine Land Development Company um, organized and coordinated the purchases so that the land that was acquired uh, became what they called the perpetual and collective property of the Jewish people. So actually, it was only a market sale until it was bought by someone working for the Zionist movement, then the land was removed from the market. It would not be okay for an Arab owner to then come by again and for the Jewish person to resell it to them. That was actually not allowed. So it's a market exchange at first and then it's not a market exchange. Um, And so they were aware of how the Arabs perceived this. right? It was a slow accumulation of land that was irrevocably going to be defined as national Jewish land and that would never enter the market again. Um, and so, Yitzhak Epstein, who was one of the folks that I mentioned before, um, raised a concern about this as early as 1905. And that's source 7 on your sheet. Uh, he wrote, We buy the lands for the most part from the owners of large estates. These owners, or their predecessors, acquired their land by deceit and exploitation and lease it to the fellahin, that's the peasants. It is customary in Eretz Yisrael for the estate to pass from one owner to another while the tenants remain in their place. But when we buy such a property, we evict the former tillers from it. Can we really rely on this way of acquiring land? Will it succeed, and does it suit our purpose? One hundred times no. Will they not in the end rise up to take back with their fists what was taken from them by the power of gold? When we come to buy lands in Eretz Israel, we must thoroughly check whose land it is, who works it, and what the rights of the latter are. And we must not complete the purchase until we are certain that no one will be worse off. Now, this claim got the same kind of response as the claim that you should reject the Balfour Declaration, right? Um, Moshe Smilansky, for example, wrote in Hapoel Hatzair, which is a left wing newspaper, right, um, that if Epstein was right, the Zionists should just give up. The land of our fathers is lost to us. Or if it belongs to us, then our national interests come first. It is not possible for one country to serve as the homeland of two peoples. That's Smilansky writing in the Hapoel Hatzair newspaper. Um, You can see a similar conflict along the question of kibush avodah, the conquest of labor Um, So, you know, the Zionists didn't make this up actually since the Enlightenment in Europe um, There is this discourse about so-called Jewish productivization There are a lot of people out there a lot of anti-Semites saying this But also a lot of Jews internalizing this idea that there's something wrong with the Jewish occupational profile that it's really not good that there's so few Jewish farmers so few Jewish factory workers. There's really something wrong with this. Jews should redistribute their professional uh, associations so that they're not doing so much um, money lending, they're not doing so much peddling, shopkeeping, um, but, but redistribute themselves, go back into agriculture. Um, and you find people making this argument in the 1780s and 1790s, both Jews and non-Jews, uh, saying this. Now, in the Zionist movement, it gets reframed as, well, now we have the perfect place, right, to do this agricultural work. Um, And, you know, it's often the case good historians of the Zionist movement and of the state of Israel will say, you know, there's this romance about the pioneer and the kibbutz and the the idea that this was the whole state. You know, a lot of people showed up and they moved to Tel Tel Aviv or Haifa and they what did they become? They became shopkeepers, or lawyers, or accountants, or you know, whatever. Right? Like everybody did not show up immediately, start working the land on a moshav somewhere. Um, but um, the question for Brit Shalom was that <clears> the Histadrut, the the big union of all of the Jewish workers, right, which was really helping new immigrants. Right, If you were a new Jewish immigrant and you showed up, the Histadrut could help find you a job, they could give you health care, they could give you all these things that you needed. But they were also functioning in a way that was very similar to the Jewish National Fund, which is to say that they took Jewish labor off the market. Jewish labor was going to be concentrated in exclusively Jewish enterprises. And this was presented as socialist because Jews could create these farms and they could work them themselves, and that was back to the land, and that was the, you know, correction of this uh, degenerate diaspora personality. But what they were noticing, and really only Bri Shalom is among all of the Zionist groups is, is talking about this like it's a problem. Um, what they're noticing is that it means that there are fewer and fewer places where Jews and Arabs are both workers in the same place. So there are some places where that's happening in Haifa. There are, of course, the Communist Party is there, and they are forming um, unions that involve both Jews and Arabs. Um, but Breach Alarm is saying, you know, we might ought to consider this policy in a general way as potentially bad. Because if we create economic segregation, that will lead to other forms of social segregation. Um, and that will make it less likely that we can achieve what, for them, they thought was their overarching goal, which was this Arab statement recognizing Zionist rights. Um, so... When they would say something like this, typically someone from the labor movement or the revisionists would say, you're spending too much time on the Arab question. This isn't that big of a deal. You don't need to be like so concerned about this. Um, and in 1929, when the Western Wall riots took place, uh, people stopped saying that. They stopped saying you're spending too much time on the Arab question. What they started saying instead was, you're traitors. You're siding with the Arabs instead of with us. Um, and so... Um, One place that we see that, well, I'll get to that actually in a second. I wanna talk about the last issue, immigration. Um, So we talked about land acquisition, we talked about um, uh, economic separation. Immigration is the last thing, right? This is the thing that everybody agrees on. If you're a Zionist, the main thing you believe is that Jews can move to Palestine and live there. That's the fundamental baseline, right? Um, And so when you see the British White Paper of 1939, that unites all the factions. Everybody is okay with illegal Jewish immigration to Palestine under the circumstances of 1939. There's like nobody who's gonna who's gonna disagree with that. Um, if you rewind just a few years to the mid 30s, right? There's no war yet, but the Nazis are in power. Um, 1935. In 1935, 60,000 Jewish immigrants entered Palestine. So if that rate had continued. The Jews would have been a majority by 1947. So when you look at the Arab Revolt that starts in 1936, right, they're aware that this rate of immigration has gone up significantly. It's way higher than it was in the mid-20s or the early 20s. That Jewish majority is really palpable. It's on its way. Um, So the question of immigration, now if we go back again to the 20s. Is Framed a little differently. There's no expectation that it's going to become mass immigration because they're not anticipating this Crisis that's going to happen in Europe. That's going to create so many Jewish refugees instead They're just talking about managing the immigration that is happening at the rate that it's happening um, but also what is immigration for and So the the idea of immigration is either in rhetoric tied to the goal of the Jewish majority or it isn't Um, and For both labor and revisionists, the question of the Jewish immigration is tied very closely to the idea of the majority. Um, And Brie Shalom thought that there was something undemocratic about this insofar as the Arabs, who were currently the majority, were petitioning Britain to create this legislature that was supposed to democratically represent the people in the country. So Ernst Simon, and this is um, number eight on your sheet, Ernst Simon wrote, If the Jews renounce the plan of developing a majority, they no longer need to oppose democratic institutions in the country. Such a peace conclusion would restore the confidence of progressive world opinion, including the League of Nations. If such a perfect peace is not arrived at, the Palestinian contingent of the Jewish people will have to fall in for hire with the imperialistic and reactionary forces and must develop all the virtues and all the vices of a warlike nation. Um, And... The next question was, if you say that the goal is a majority, what do you have to say you're willing to do to achieve it? Because if you say that the goal is the majority, then there's going to be resistance. And that resistance could be violent resistance. So uh, point nine on your sheet, or quote nine, this is from David Werner, senator, um, in a letter to Chaim Weizmann. Um, And he's actually resigning from his position in... uh, an institutional Zionist organization when he writes this. If it is not assumed that the great powers are prepared to transfer the Arabs of Palestine from this country to other Arab countries, the program of a Jewish commonwealth can only mean partition. But here again, a workable partition seems to be possible only if at least a partial transfer of Palestinians from their homes to areas outside the Jewish state is effected. In other words, even if you take the land and you try to draw a line inside of it, around all of the areas where the Jews are the majority, even then, it would be very hard to create that majority unless you imagine the significant number of the Arabs inside that area moving somewhere else.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: Which means that... Essentially large-scale force would be required by that plan There would be no way to do that if the Arabs who were going to be inside that Jewish state didn't want to move and didn't want to live in that state um, so That led the B'ri Shalom group to even advocate and this is really what made people feel like they were beyond the pale at the time to even advocate to allow Arab uh, leaders to place to offer restrictions on Jewish immigration rate. Um, Now, it might have, again, been less controversial in the 20s, although it was never popular in the Zionist movement. It was less controversial to say that in 1926 than in uh, 1934, right? Um, But in no way was it going to be really popular. So, you know, this is a group of weirdos. Um, They are taking positions that are very different from the rest of the movement. Um, And one thing that we might want to mention then in that context is they have a number of things in common Um, They share a lot of personal background features that are leading them to kind of go in this direction Um, Many of them are central European in origin Um, They're from the heart of the Habsburg lands Um, the German speaking places in Czechoslovakia for example um, many of them were members of the Bar Kokhba Society, which was a Zionist group that formed in Prague, a youth group, um, at the turn of the century, and many of them were extremely influenced by the lectures. Extremely influenced by the lectures that they heard Martin Buber give there, in 1909, 1910, and 1911. Um, he gave these lectures, which essentially anointed him as the sort of de facto spiritual leader of a particular type of Central European, young, acculturated Zionist Jew. Bergman once wrote, anyone who had heard those speeches by Buber has not forgotten them and cannot forget them to his dying day. Judaism has been placed before us as a great human issue. And the barrier between Judaism and humanism has fallen away. Um, and so they were, in this sense, cultural Zionists. They believed, like a chad ha'am, that Zionism was not just about Um, solving the problem of the physical protection of the Jews, but was about Judaism itself. Um, And they believed that Buber was the person who could put some flesh on the bones of that idea, who who could say that Judaism was a task that God had given to the Jewish people and that they could make it a reality, that it was in fact their job to make it a reality, and that they could do that right now. Um, And so this was... Electrifying because it meant that they suddenly had meaning and purpose to their lives whereas before they were kind of wondering What is this Judaism? What do we do with it? I'm a German-speaking Jew. I live in Prague What am I you know supposed to do with my life? And you know one way to deal with that was to become Kafka Mm -hmm. right and just write a bunch of uh, novels and stories about how life had no meaning at all Right? And another thing you could do was to follow Buber and uproot yourself and plant yourself in Palestine and think I am literally fulfilling the commandment of God right now, right? Um, so of course Buber stayed in Germany this whole time uh, He didn't go to Palestine and a lot of his uh, he didn't go until 1938. He was like the last guy out of Germany um, and a lot of his students were really mad at him about this Um, especially Gershom Scholem. But he was um, involved in Brit Shalom's affairs. He was one of those board member types that I mentioned before. Um, He decided ultimately that, um, you know, it was his job actually to serve in some sort of leadership role for the Jews of Germany. Um, Before the Nazis came to power, for example, Buber never went into a synagogue. Everything he had to say about Judaism was about Judaism in the rest of life outside the synagogue. And only after the Nazis came to power did Buber start showing up in synagogues with a talisman to give people, you know, inspiration where they were. Um, So, you know, he felt that that was where he belonged. It's also worth saying that in 1938 when he moved to Palestine, he was um, 60. So, you know, he was inspiring all these young men to uproot themselves and go. But he was not himself already, you know, really uh, all that young. He could have, maybe in 1908, he could have gone. Um, And that would have made sense for him to do. Um, Of course, he was much better known also for all of these other things that he did. He edited these Hasidic tales, collections of uh, rewritten um, Hasidic tales, which he presented as kind of neo-romantic fodder. Um, He wrote I and Thou, this great book about uh, the concept of the philosophy of dialogue Um, And he worked with Franz Rosenzweig on a new translation of the Bible into German And he also set up an adult education institution called the Lehrhaus Where people could go and learn about Judaism uh, at all ages, um, at all times There were classes in Torah, in Talmud, in Mishnah, and so on um, and classes in philosophy. So, you know, he was he was keeping busy um, But the point here is the the way that he taught these folks in this radical coterie in Brit Shalom The way he taught them to think about Judaism um, And what he said was that essentially um, a test was being put to Judaism by the modern world right, so when the Jews were um, Forced to live in segregated communities. They could sort of run their affairs in an autonomous way, although they were never in charge. They could never determine what society should look like. They had to work within very small restrictions. And you will see religious Zionists talking about this even today, for example, right? Like, there is a very developed halakha about borrowing and lending, there's not a very developed halakha about war. Why? Because there weren't any rabbis in charge of deciding when to go to war and when not to go to war. So nobody was writing about that between the year 135 and the year uh, 1948. Um, So that's one reason that Buber thought that there was something truncated about Judaism in the diaspora. Not just because people were oppressed, but because there was no room for the full expression. And of course, Buber was not a halakhic Jew, so he wasn't gonna phrase it in the way that I just did about halakha, but he meant social life. It was not possible for Jews in the diaspora to design their lives as an expression of living out Judaism. Whereas he thought that if Jews moved to Palestine, they had that opportunity. They could create with a blank slate what it was that Judaism was always supposed to be in the world. And if they did that, it would be just like the prophet Isaiah said. The Torah would go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in a way, what Buber thought was that, you know, the the Bible is about the story of the Jews trying to fulfill this election that God has asked them to do. They failed. They had some good kings, like two, a bunch of really bad kings. Then they got exiled. And at the very end of the Bible, what happens? They get a second chance. They come back from the exile. That's where the story ends. But we know what happened. They got exiled again. And that one lasted really, really, really a long time. And so what Buber thought was going on really was there's a third chance to get this right. But what it means to get this right is that uh, they can't imitate the existing forms of state in the countries that they're dispersed in. So they shouldn't make a nation state and they shouldn't make an empire and they shouldn't make a communist dictatorship and they shouldn't make a fascist dictatorship uh, they have to make something else. And of course since he wasn't a Halakhic Jew, he didn't think they should make a so-called Halakhic state either um, Although that's what some other folks who would think of themselves as religious Zionists would think that meant, right? And um, in my other talk later, I'm gonna have something from Yeshayahu uh, Leibovitch who really liked to make fun of those people um, For saying that they wanted a Halakhic state, but they didn't know what it meant um, Yeah um, So he didn't think that there's going to be like some rabbis who are in charge and they're going to have the police come and get you if you don't keep the Sabbath. That's not what he's talking about. Um, What he's talking about is actually something that's a lot more like uh, an anarchist utopia. And what do I mean by that? So (coughs) when Buber still lived in Germany, one of his great friends, and actually uh, this year, 2019, is the 100th anniversary of his death, um, was Gustav Landauer, who was an anarchist activist And um, he played a big role in the November Revolution. At the end of the war, when Germany was losing, clearly, or was about to declare surrender, there was a, you know, sailor's mutiny. And this sailor's mutiny spread to factories around the country. And the Weimar Republic eventually comes into existence and kind of puts down all these rebellions. But Landauer was very heavily involved in the one in Munich. And um, what he thought was that, essentially... um, if you wanted to get uh, a really good society, um, what it meant for him to be an anarchist was, instead of having what the Marxists wanted, which was having a party state, and instead of having what the capitalists wanted, which was that you have a republic, um, but basically the richest people in the republic uh, tell the politicians what to do, um, you just have councils that are convened at every location that people are. So there's a neighborhood council, there's a council at your work, There's a council um, at your, you know, whatever organization you're involved in. And all these councils essentially independently decide how to run whatever it is that they do. So the neighborhood council decides how to run the neighborhood and the work council decides how to run the office. And if you need to make decisions for larger areas, the councils just send their representatives to the larger councils and they're direct representatives so they don't get to change what they say. The lower councils decide and they send them just as, Um, Delegates who only have the ability to represent the decision made by the lower council and so That was what Landauer wanted Germany to be Um, And that was his goal in his participation in the revolution in Munich in 1918 Um, and In a way, I think that what Buber did and this is the argument I make in my book uh, Martin Buber's Theopolitics Is that he just transferred that to Palestine? And he thought that he didn't need to persuade the Zionists to do this because they were already settling Many of them in these small collectives and they were already self-administering their work um, in the kibbutzim and he thought that if they just sort of networked the kibbutzim together, what do you need a state for? You have Jews living Jewish lives in Palestine and um, they are reviving Jewish culture and language in unpredictable ways and They're administering their own affairs. So why should you go and create another one of those? Um, states that as we saw in Europe uh, just recently, you know tore themselves apart um, over questions of borders and land and so on um, So this is a sort of anarchist utopia idea um, It's basically that the kibbutzim themselves are basically the cells of society and you don't need another thing on top of that and um, We're running short on time. So I want to get to questions, but basically And discussion. But basically, um, when Buber writes about the Bible, he writes as though um, this is the story of the original election of the Jewish people, that God brought them into the land and wanted to be their king directly, literally. Buber takes this absolutely literally. But if God is their king, what that means is that they don't have a different, another king, a human king, And uh, in the book of Samuel, we read about the fact that eventually the Israelites get fed up with not having a human king because they keep losing battles uh, and they need someone to kind of be their general. So they ask for this human king. And um, from that point, and and God tells Samuel, you know, they've rejected me as their king. And the whole arc of the subsequent history that takes place in the Bible for Buber stems from that one moment where the Israelites kind of misperceived what they were supposed to have been doing. And so he sees that as a direct analog to the present. And when he engages in his polemics with Ben-Gurion um, about the idea of what kind of state they should be making in Palestine, um, he essentially sees Ben-Gurion, another David, as analogous to the original David. Um, he could potentially be a great man. He could unify people. He could lead a big state. But he's going to initiate a process that is a, essentially a betrayal of what the purpose of the Jews is, which is to um, obey God directly. Um, And Buber saw the kibbutz as the kind of, you know, it wasn't like we're going to go back into Issachar and Dan and, you know, recreate the tribal confederation. But the kibbutzim are are sort of like a version of something like that that could work in the present day and which he thought um, would also potentially prevent the conflict with the Arabs because it wouldn't Declare openly that the goal was to create a majority and eventually rule over you in the country that you live in Um, And so you can see that in quote 10 we won't we I won't read it, but it's 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 buber talking about the food the idea that they are the cells um, of a new society Um, And so that's basically where I want to leave you Um, There's a couple more quotes uh, on there going back and forth between um, people who are, are taking one position or the other um, on this question. Um, I guess if I'm going to conclude here, um, I would draw your attention to quote 13, which is, which is from Buber, um, talking about the term binationalism. And this is from a couple of decades later, 1947. Um, the breach Shalom has dissolved a new organization called the Ichud formed to kind of do breach Shalom's work. And they are... Um, appearing before the Anglo-American Commission of Inquiry in Jerusalem, um, essentially, and this is an interesting fact, Buber and Magnus are against partition. They're against partition because the principle of partition is the Jewish majority. They would rather there be one state because they thought that that was more likely to um, lead to a situation in which the numbers didn't matter. So the reason I think this quote is interesting is if you look at it, he says, this program, namely binationalism, is only a temporary adaptation of our path to the concrete historical situation. It is not necessarily the path itself. So I think that sentence allows us to think about this in a way that potentially makes it more relevant, right? Because if we think of it as binationalism, it was a program that failed essentially in 1948 when the state was created not as a binational state. Um, but he says binationalism is just an adaptation of our path. It's a, a name, a version of what we want that works in this circumstance. But it's not the path itself. The path itself is an agreement between the two nations, naturally also taking into account the productive participation of smaller national groups, so not, not just by right? Other people can come and live here too. It doesn't have to be two. Um, an agreement which, in our opinion, would lead to Jewish-Arab cooperation and the revival of the Middle East, with the Jewish partner concentrated in a strong settlement in Palestine. This cooperation, though necessarily starting out from economic premises, will allow development in accordance with an all-embracing cultural perspective and on the basis of a feeling of that oneness tending to result in a new form of society. So that that goal is still there, the idea that um, the Jews have to be aiming not just high, but as high as possible Uh, In order to fulfill the command that is the reason for their existence Um, And so that's the sort of spiritual outlook that Buber transmitted to all of these other folks Bergman Cohn, Simon um, and that was what led them to take these strange positions on immigration land acquisition and Abu avoda So that's basically the presentation um, and I'd be really interested in hearing uh, what you all think. Yes, please.
2: Yeah, in the twenties and thirties and the forties, the leader of the Arabs in Palestine was an Islamic religious leader, as you know, Husseini, mm-hmm. Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was doing everything he could to organize the Arabs to murder the Jews, mm-hmm. and he even became an ally of Hitler, hoping that uh, Rommel's North African campaign would reach Palestine Mm -hmm. and then they would murder all the Jews. Uh, So this was not just a national movement, but because this man was, in fact, the Islamic religious leader, this was also an Islamic religious cause that he was pushing. Uh, What did Buber have to say about the Islamic element Mm -hmm. in this conflict between the Arabs who, the vast majority of whom were Muslims, Mm -hmm. and not just Arab nationality? Uh, did Buber ever read the Quran? Did he mm-hmm. understand what motivated the Arabs religiously, their, the source of their values coming from the Quran, which calls for Muslims to make war on the Jews and subjugate them to Sharia law?
1: So um, I was asked to repeat questions uh, for the microphone here, so I will create an encapsulated version. Um, the question is about uh, whether Buber engaged with the Islamic elements of the opposition to Zionism among the Palestinian Arabs, um, and specifically whether he commented on uh, Haj al-Husseini um, and his uh, various programs and, and goals. Um, my sense um, from whether... First of all, I don't think Buber knew Arabic, although Brit Shalom did sponsor Arabic courses um, for new immigrants um, and had a general goal of... Uh, Teaching Jews who were going to be living in Palestine to learn Arabic Um, But I think that um, His perception of al-Husseini Was that um, Al-Husseini was a version on the other side of his own opponents on his side So he thought that Basically, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that al-Husseini is Jabotinsky for Buber But like there's something sort of like he thinks, you know If the people who were more like me were in charge on that side or had more influence on that side um, Then the problems that were caused by al-Husseini wouldn't be so problematic, but nobody on my side is listening to me So why should they? uh, Act as though I am the influence on my side Um, I think it's worth mentioning that the Supreme Muslim Council of which al-Husseini was the head, um, was also a creation of the British. Um, It was an effort actually to blunt Arab nationalism, which was originally um, often um, appearing in newspapers that were run by Christian Arabs. Um, And nationalism served the Christian minority right, by making Arabness the basis of identity rather than religion. Um, and the British attempted to counter that, actually, by creating the Supreme Muslim Council, and they empowered Husseini. Um, so I think that um, Buber didn't see the ideological element as actually um, that important to Arab resistance, because, as I said, they were focusing on all these material <coughs> factors. They were focusing on immigration and land acquisition and uh, economic segregation and the idea of an eventual majority leading to a new state, Um, And so they were pretty persuaded that it was rational, and Jabotinsky says this as well, it was rational for the Arabs to oppose these things, uh, and they weren't in need of a special motivation that was going to come from some other realm. Yes?
3: You started off by saying that you were going to talk about the people who were losers. Mm. Looking back now at what they were doing then, mm-hmm. if they hadn't been the losers, what would the differences have been? Mm.
1: The question was, if they hadn't lost, how would things have been different? Uh, I don't know that there's any way that we can know. Um, it's, you know, alternate history. There are some really great alternate history books out there by people who, who love to write in this genre. But this is a really tough one because... Um, The 48 war wouldn't have happened Um, It's unlikely that the state of Israel as we know it would have come into existence Um, We can't predict how the Arab nationalism that arose elsewhere in the region Would it have had a greater impact on? Palestine or would Palestine have had an inverse impact for example on someone like Nasser making him seem less uh, of a necessary option that he, in fact, later came to scene. Um, you would have to play out a lot. What, what would the Soviet Union have done, you know? Um, you have to really put in a lot of factors to figure it out. Um, so, you know, it's a fantastic question, but I don't know if I have the novelistic skills to sketch out all of those different alternatives. Yes, please.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. By the way, I, I, I commend you on dealing with Incredibly difficult subject that you could do in one or two hours. I mean, it's just impossible. Uh, one of the things I noticed you talked about was the period in 1910, 1915, 1920, and you were very Germanically focused in your intellectual position mm-hmm. when there were things going on in Russia, mm-hmm. where the Jews, the Russian group, were dealing with things a lot differently. They were coming from a more orthodox, more traditional kind of world, and how to handle. For example, Alexander and and, and the anti-Semitism out of the Russian world. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question would be: Would you speculate, or do you know how the Germans dealt with the knowledge of what was going on in Russia? Mm -hmm. And how they incorporated that into their philosophical position. And number two, I just wanted to inform you that Hans Jonas, who I knew quite well, told me that Martin Buber was. Typical armchair Jew of the German school mm. Who had no real knowledge of what Orthodox Judaism was like many of these characters They knew nothing about uh, Jewish practice, but they were great thinkers mm. Even the I and Thou is really closer to Hinduism than it is a... Um... Anyway, so please
1: give me... Uh, thank you. Um, the question was about the um, The way that these Germans or Central Europeans uh, Understood and related to the things that were going on among their Russian brethren um, and those trends and that and that uh, context Um, Yeah, so there's a very complex uh, and dynamic relationship there um, because of the way that Especially when there was political turbulence in Russia many people would move west out of the Pale of Settlement uh, and wind up in Poland and the Poles would move west and wind up in Berlin. And um, this gave the German Jews an opportunity um, to have contact with Eastern European Jews, Um, but their attitude towards them was somewhat uh, what we would call today, Orientalist. They had an Orientalist attitude towards their own co-religionists, whom they saw as a kind of version of themselves from the past. Um, And they could relate to that in more than one way. They could relate to it in a kind of way where they were disgusted and said, I'm ashamed of this. Um, Some of the liberal German Jews sided with the government in attempts to keep Polish Jews from coming to Germany, right? Keep them out because they make us look bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was also a kind of other um, attitude they could take, which was more romantic, where they thought of the Russian and Polish Jews as having the authenticity that they, the Germans, had lost through their assimilation, yes. And that was Buber. Um, and that was part of what he was doing with his Hasidic tales, was to, to show all these German Jews how much life and vitality and so on there was in this traditional uh, Jewish environment. Um, he was from Lviv, uh Lemberg, they called it uh, when they were speaking German. Um, and so he did have that contact as a boy directly. Um, but the question of his um, uh, level of knowledge of it, I think, is disputed. I mean, Jonas had that view uh, that he didn't really know. I think Heschel may have had a different view. Um, Buber was not interested in um, authenticating himself except through inspiration. So if you found it inspiring, it was authentic. And if you didn't, he didn't care. And so that was basically it. Yes, please. Uh,
3: I'd like to go back to your comments that said, um, God doesn't sign promissory notes. Mm-hmm. So could you elaborate that a, a little more? I yeah. I need to understand Buber's thinking. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Uh, the question of, could I clarify Buber's comment that God doesn't sign promissory notes? So an interesting um, way to think about this, I, sh- I should say first of all what it's not. This is not the natura carta. So if you look at the Neturei Karta, which is a sect of the Satmar Hasidic movement, and whenever you see um, a big Israel-focused event and you see Hasidic Jews outside with Palestinian flags, right, and saying that um, Israel doesn't represent true Torah Judaism, um, that's usually the Neturei Karta, and their name means guardians of the city, and it comes specifically from a theological belief that they hold that um, Jews don't need armies because they should just study the Torah And if you study the Torah, God will protect you, right? That's a very direct and literal way of understanding what Buber means um, when he says God doesn't sign promissory notes, right? Um, He's not talking about like, be good, God will help you. Be bad, God won't help you. What he does mean is that um, if you want to have a politics that is in some way informed by spirit that is in some way informed by religion. And here Buber is very, very interested in Gandhi and um, the way that Gandhi attempts to influence events in India according to his interpretation of Hinduism. Um, And, you know, in terms of losers, we can say, I don't know if Gandhi a loser or a winner. In some sense, he had a massive influence and essentially helped create India. Um, In another sense, India today is not what he wanted it to be. He didn't also, like Buber, was against partition. He didn't want Pakistan to be created. Uh, He lost in many, many, many ways, not just uh, being assassinated. But uh, Buber was interested in this notion, how do you bring the spirit to the political? And he was against any claim that um, you could just say that there's some specific political program that God wants. But he also didn't think that you could say that God is indifferent to what you do politically. So there's something in between those positions and the problem is it's inherently vague, right? Like you can't know in advance that this is the thing that God wants. So by God doesn't sign promissory notes, what he means is you can't have that security of knowing in advance that you're doing the exact right thing. But in some sense, you have to take a risk of committing yourself to a course of action because you're not allowed to do nothing. Yeah. So
3: it's not saying anything about the, uh, the uh, covenant, God's covenant with Israel.
1: Um, yeah, so he, he is actually also saying that. Uh, thank you. Um, he's saying something about the covenant in that um, he does not perceive the Jewish right to the land of Israel as something like a title deed that God signed over to Abraham that was valid in perpetuity. What he, what he sees it as, and he thinks that the bulk of the Tanakh and of rabbinic literature supports him on this, is that God says, I want you to make this society. Basically, I want you to get together and do all of these things. Here's where you should do that. If you do it, you can keep doing it there. If you don't do it, the lamb will vomit you out, etc., etc."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yes, in the back.
2: Letter of
3: resignation. I mean the last words
1: are Zionism is not Judaism. Mm -hmm. This seems to me the basis of anti-Semitism today. Mm. It is
0: the excuse. I don't know if those who hate us are using this as or if it's just coincidental. I mean, I don't see how. He, I mean, how did he get to the point where a pacifistic Um, Palestine was basically not Judaism, though. It was not a Jewish place. I mean, Zionism and Judaism were so, were
3: antithetical, and I I don't get it.
1: Um, So the question about, thank you, the question's about about Cohn's letter. This is from 1929. So it's in response to the actions that are done by movement leaders in the wake of the Western Wall riots. This is Husseini who instigated that. Um, A lot of people die, both Jews and Arabs, and especially a lot of non-Zionist Jews die. Um, In Hebron, for example, um, Haredi, what we call now Haredi Jews, who were not part of the Zionist movement, were killed just because they were Jews and they were associated with those other Jews. Um, What Cohn is saying is that because, essentially, in the wake of these riots, It seemed as though the Zionist movement recommitted itself to the path that it was on before instead of saying it should change course and uh, do something more like what Brit Shalom wanted it to do. um, It was going to put the state in the making on a path to being what Cohn thought of as like a warlike fortress state. And he thought that if such a state came about, what he means by that's not Judaism is no different than what the author of Kings meant when he wrote about King Manasseh. He did what was not good in the sight of the Lord, and he therefore caused all sorts of bad things to happen. That's, what, that's the page that Kone is on. So just because there's a bunch of Jews and they're doing something doesn't mean that that's Judaism uh, any more than King Manasseh was a good king. Yeah.
3: If you don't mind, I'd like to say something about it. <coughs> there was all... Always a a fundamental Zionistic undercurrent that existed in Judaism that was perpetuated from the very beginning, which showed itself up over the 17th, 18th, 19th century as the orthodox traditional observant Jew. Those Jews had a fundamental belief that there would be a Messiah that would come and save them. What? The issue that you're talking about was the state at which a point of emancipation and the new world was coming up in the 1800s. The Jews decided, you know, we're not going to wait for the second coming. Excuse me, second coming, not second coming. Mm
1: -hmm. The first coming. We're going to
3: act out on it and create a situation where Hashem has to send his Mashiach because we've had it with the pogroms. It was only at that time. So... There are Jews today that believe, the Satomers, there are certain Satomers that believe Israel is not legitimate because the Mashiach hasn't come and Israel doesn't have a state. Mm -hmm. And yet there's always these tensions and conflicts in Judaism which are incredible and they manifest themselves by these different positions. So sure, some Jews would say, well, Israel is not a Jewish state, state, not legitimate. (coughs) And they have good reason to believe that and yet Mm -hmm. there are other Jews who say, listen, if I have to wait for it, you know, to come and help us. But okay. uh, not going to happen. We're going to make it happen, and that's what the Israelis do. Am I wrong? Or what? No, you're no
1: okay. that was that was totally correct. Of course, Crohn is not a Satmar, but he has a similar what you might call a messianic vision. This notion, right? I mean, and the messianic vision for the way that the Breach Shalom people saw it was that um, essentially. Uh, And this was actually the other, the real real last quote on the sheet, actually. Um, If you look at this last quote from Buber, which is from 1956, um, he's, again, this is the sort of anarcho-utopia that I mentioned before. Um, And he says, I doubt if there is anything more important today than the choice between two types of socialism. One is a so-called socialism that is imposed from above. The other is a socialism from below, a socialism of spontaneity arising out of the real life of society. The coming stage of humanity that will emerge from this great crisis of man depends in great measure on just this decision. It depends on whether it will be possible to set up over against Moscow, he doesn't mention Washington, but another spontaneous type of socialism, and I venture even today to call it Jerusalem." So that's messianic, right? I mean, there's a new stage of humanity that's going to come, and it's going to come not because God decided to send a messiah, but because the Jews in the land did something that served as an example to everyone else in the world to completely change their politics. They're not going to be Soviets anymore. They're not going to follow the American example. They're going to follow the Jerusalem example. That's Isaiah, right? Um, And so it's a different type of um, messianic vision. Thank you very much.